Do you know the difference between emotional and behavioral disabilities? In this episode, Ali Sinsinski, a special education teacher with a focus on behavior management, shares all about emotional learning and trauma-informed practices. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA-certified speech-language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Ali Sazinski, a special education teacher with a focus on behavior management. For over nine years in the classroom, she taught exclusively in self-contained settings in Chicago and the surrounding urban areas. She is passionate about serving children with emotional disabilities as she believes they're often very misunderstood. Equitable behavior plans and effective classroom management became her passion projects. Hey, Allie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on today. I am thrilled to hear about your tips and tricks for behavior management. So why don't we get the listeners kind of up to speed, share how you kind of got into this field and where you're at now. Sure. So I went to college at Illinois State University, which is a state school here in Illinois. I got my undergraduate degree in special education and in Illinois that allows me to teach children basically across the board in special education. It's a pretty robust program that they have for us here just in the state. So I can teach children of all disability areas except for deaf, hard of hearing and blind, visually impaired because that requires some additional training. But I also have certifications. I can teach kindergarten through age 21. So we kind of get the whole gamut here in Illinois which is awesome. And so really opened doors for me. And I started teaching in um, our biggest uh, school district in the state in Chicago public schools in a elementary school that, and I um, taught children that had more intellectual disabilities, autism, things like that. And I taught in that setting for about seven years and about halfway through my time in Chicago public schools, I started Uh, a master's degree program. And I also got my master's in special education. And in Illinois, when you do that, you do like an additional like specification. Um, So I got mine in multiple disabilities. So that just gave me so much, just more in-depth knowledge and truly made me the teacher that I am today. That program was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was so worth it. And um, so then I moved to teaching, um, in a different school district, a little bit north of the city of Chicago, children with pretty significant emotional and behavior disorders and a large majority of the students there actually lived residentially. So it was a really super unique experience and it opened my eyes to just a side of special education that I really didn't know. And I had always been passionate about behavior, but 
after teaching in that setting, it just really kind of like set me on fire in a certain way. Um, just knowing that so many students um, maybe didn't even really need to be in that setting if they had had teachers that had been more equipped um, in understanding behavior and sort of where that comes from and understanding the effects of trauma on the brain, things like that. And just our, our teacher prep programs don't really prepare us for stuff like that. Um, for the last few years, I've actually been doing special education consulting for a local nonprofit. And then this year, I'm actually headed back to a school. Um, I'm going to be a social, emotional learning and behavior coach at a local elementary school. So I'm going back to a school setting. I really missed it. So back with kids. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's exciting. Thanks. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear, you know, kind of how you got to where you are now. Um, but it's really fascinating and you're right because I live in Florida and we have a really big district on here and we have like behavior centers. So sure. It takes a lot to get a child sent to one of those. Um, they have, to, they have to go through a lot of paperwork. It has to be approved by like a board, but they are really often misunderstood in those settings and they end up thriving in those settings. And I think it has something to do with what you were pointing out that, the teachers that they had previously were just not equipped to deal with those type of behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's just Absolutely. really, and as speech language pathologists, like there are certain specialty areas of, of our field as well, where we just don't get enough training and you don't know what you don't know, you know? That's exactly what it is. It's like, I'm doing the best I can. And the thing is, I think most of the time people are, you know, it's like, I, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Exactly. We just need people to sort of support teachers on their way through it. If you've never been with a student that's, you know, presented in a certain way, how would you know what to do, you know? Right. Well, and then that's where your behavior coach position really comes in handy because you'll be at like a general, I'm guessing a general like elementary school. Um, yes. Being able to help with a wide variety of kiddos. Yes. Yes. That's the goal. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's talk about your background in special education and how it's shaped your experience. Well, I feel like, well, my first off, my mom was a special education teacher for 30 years. So wow. I feel like, I mean, we, we can only imagine that that played a huge role on to where I am today in general. But um, so I grew up just in a family that really embraced that. And, um, I had a peer growing up that had autism. And at first I just had no idea. I just thought he was like the strange kid in my classes. And my mom really kind of walked me through that, you know, like he really needs you as a friend and you're going to really need to step up in certain circumstances if you feel like you can, you know? And so I really took that upon myself and it just sort of it, it uh, definitely just made me become a person that would want to be a special ed teacher, right? Like I always kind of felt like I gravitated towards, you know, kids who are maybe a little bit different from me when they were my peers. And then when I became in a position to be able to support younger children who had disabilities, it just came naturally to me. Um, I think when I was a, in early on in my career, behavior just sort of stood out to me. Um, I found that there were so many people that were well-meaning, but it was sort of sabotaging everything that we were trying to do in the classroom, you know, engaging with students in the hallway when they were exhibiting some behaviors that we didn't really want to see and just lots of different pieces that I was sort of like, wow, everyone here is doing the best that they can, 
but it's because they just aren't really sure, you know, what, what to do in this scenario. And this just seems best, right? They're going off of what they think would be the best way to respond in this type of situation. And a lot of the times it wasn't the best way to respond, but it just really showed me that there's so much that like, we just don't know and that we're all never on the same page or that's how it feels. And so as I started working with children that have emotional behavior disorders, I also found that there's a lot of just misconstrued in information out there about children that have, um, that exhibit, that frequently exhibit those really challenging behaviors that totally impede their academics. And that just sort of shaped who I am because now that's what I'm mostly passionate about is finding what works for each individual child, which often is not the same across the board. And while there are best practices for kids with behavior disabilities, they don't work for everybody. And that's true of any intervention, but I think um, it's really prevalent in this population of students. And um, just helping teachers understand that they can do it and that kids don't always need to be outplaced or put somewhere else or with a, a certain type of teacher, like you can be the teacher that supports them. You just need to know what to do. So I think helping teachers and therapists build that toolbox so that they feel like they can support kids that, that exhibit those behaviors is something that I've, you know, that has become really near and dear to my heart and something that um, I think we all really need in our schools. Absolutely. Oh, that's so good. So what are some like emotional and behavioral disabilities that speech language pathologists or other educators should be aware of? So that's an interesting question because there's different ways that you can look at that. Um, according to IDEA, emotional disability is a disability label in itself, right? And so that can mean that they also have a clinical diagnosis that can mean that they don't, right? So you may have a child that in your class that since kindergarten has exhibited some pretty significant behaviors and then maybe third or fourth grade, they have enough data and the IEP team decides that this child is eligible for um, receiving an actual label of emotional behavior disorder. Typically that happens when kids are a little bit older. Um, and then sometimes maybe a speech pathologist is looking at their caseload and they see that they have a kiddo that is under maybe a disability label of other health impairment and they have conduct disorder or they have oppositional defiance disorder or maybe even bipolar disorder, right? Like a disorder maybe that we're a little bit more familiar with across the board. And um, those, those actual disorders are not disabilities under IDEA. Like a child could have bipolar disorder and not have an IEP, right? Because that's not a disability area and they maybe don't qualify for emotional disability. It sort of depends. So if, um, if, it, if a speech pathologist were to get a student on their caseload, I feel like that has um, either a disorder or a disability that would definitely impede behavior and just kind of show up in that way. I think um, that's something that they should, you know, really be collaborating with the other related professionals, typically a child that has um, a disability label or a disorder, such as the ones I, you know, suggested, but there's a plenty of others. Um, they typically will get social work minutes. So I think talking with the social worker could be huge. And I think sometimes in those situations, it can be really fun for the therapist to work together and do therapy together. Um, I've seen that work super well, where you can just add in social skills and those extra pieces into therapy and just sort of work together. Um, 
you know, it kills two birds with one stone where you're able to just sort of get both done. You can collaborate with another professional that maybe you don't always work with. And sometimes that works best for the student. Like maybe they don't love being pulled out into a different setting. And so you can kind of get both those things done at once. Maybe they prefer one of those adults over the other. So that can be an easier way to be able to, you know, get compliance working. And then sometimes you can do a smaller group with that and have them be able to work with their peers. And that can be really fun too. I love that. So who do you find is typically making the referral for a child who maybe hasn't been evaluated yet? You know, it can, it really depends. Across the board, I've seen that be teachers saying like, wow, it seems like for the last few years, we've been just hearing that this student is just really struggling with their behavior. So it could be, it could be, um, it could be a, the, the classroom teacher that is. And sometimes I also see parents, you know, they're really concerned about behavior that they're seeing at home and they're curious, like, is this presenting at school too? And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but I would say it's usually one or the other. It's usually one of those two that are kind of like saying, you know, these are, this is something we need to look at and see if, if special education would actually, um, would actually work for this kiddo. And if that's, those are supports that they need right now. Right. So from a school-based perspective, what type of supports do you often see like in an IEP? Sure. Uh, proximity can be huge. Um, having a student in a smaller group or with typically a shared paraprofessional. I don't always love having students with behavioral needs, having a dedicated paraprofessional. I think that can get really tricky and tough. Um, and I don't always think it's as necessary as we think that it is at first. Um, but I think proximity can just be really important. Um, being able to catch that student before maybe they get into a state of dysregulation that's really hard to get out of, right? And if you have proximity to an adult, they can help the child sort of begin to understand themselves like, oh, I'm about to really have a moment that's going to be hard for me. Maybe I should, you know, use one of these coping skills or take a break or, you know, whatever seems to work for that student. Um, I think those can be huge. And I think that the biggest piece that we often miss is just giving kids the opportunity to make choices. Um, often we hear or we say as adults, you know, this child just really wants to be in control or they really want power. And the thing is like, we all want that, you know, like right now, I really wish that I could be in control of certain parts of my life that I can't, right, that are out of my control. We all want that. And so this child probably does want control because we all do. So giving them the opportunity to make choices, I think can just be so powerful. You know, like, do you want to use a marker? Do you want to use a pencil? Do you want to sit over here? Or you want to sit over here? You know, what are, what are these, you know, at like a menu of choices that would be appropriate for a situation and letting them choose can just be so powerful and gives them such a great opportunity to be able to get that control or that power that we're kind of seeing that they're craving. It can just really, really be effective. I love those suggestions. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Coming from a school setting as well, you know, there's a lot of red tape and getting those supports put on an IEP can often take a while. We had like what's called like an FBA and um, mm -hmm. here. I don't know if it's the same across the United States, but yeah, if it wasn't in the IEP yet, the team like it was really hard to get them to implement any strategies that were not already in there, not because they didn't want to, but because they like, they had probably had so many other things going on or they didn't know it would work for that child. So sure. what are your suggestions like in that meantime? Cause it can take a while. 
I think that the most powerful thing is if you go into a classroom as the speech pathologist, let's say, and you model for the general education teacher what you're looking for them to do. I think often a big piece is like we don't really get it as adults. You're like, yeah, this is on paper, but I just do not see how this is going to work in my classroom. Like I'm just not seeing how this is going to work or already kind of thinking like, Hey, I did this with another kiddo and it did not work. So like, I'm not going to like spend this time and energy to figure it out because this kind of thing doesn't work or until it's in the IEP, it's not really expected of me. So like, I'm just going to wait because I just don't have the time or the energy to do it until I have to. And if you as a professional are like, no, this is really going to make a difference and it's going to work, you know, tomorrow, if we just, you know, start implementing it now, if you can get in that classroom and, and model for that teacher, like, this is what I mean. This is how you would do it. Watch me and let's do it together. I'll come back in, you know, even in an hour and kind of watch you do it when there's some time. Um, I think that can just alleviate a lot of stress for a teacher and it can allow you to really show that individual like this works, you know, like we just got to try it. And I promise it's not maybe as challenging or as cumbersome as it might seem on paper, like it's super simple. And if you can kind of show it to them, I think that not only shows partnership and support to the other, you know, your colleague, but it also kind of takes, you know, the mystery out of it and allows um, for you to be able to kind of show what you're talking about. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you for those suggestions. And I am sure that, you know, if an SLP has access to a behavior coach or I'm trying to think we had behavior texts, like in my district, um, somebody sure. specialized in that area or works with the BCBA, they would probably be willing to just discuss some strategies that could be helpful while those pieces are being put in place, right? I would think so. I mean, those, I mean, everybody is busy in a school setting, obviously, but yeah. when it comes to stuff like that, yeah, I think just working as a team and asking people for some um, little tips and tricks can be super helpful. Don't you wish you could earn ASHA CEUs just for listening to this podcast? It is so inconvenient to find great professional development opportunities at an affordable price that works with your schedule. You're listening to this podcast anyway. Why not earn ASHA CEUs while doing so? That is why we are thrilled to announce that Speechy Side Up is now offering ASHA CEUs through TASSEL for select courses. Here's what you get with your TASSEL membership. You can earn more than 0.12 ASHA CEUs in one year while you listen to podcasts. You get to complete all of your course requirements in one place and even on your phone. You also get free access to virtual SLP events like SLP Connect and SLP Live conferences. And you get exclusive access to topic-specific groups like behavior, apraxia, AAC, and more. Once your course requirements are met, TASSEL will automatically report your course participation to ASHA. Head on over to tasseltogether.com to learn more. If you decide to join, use the discount code SSUPODCAST, all lowercase, to receive up to 20% off whichever membership you choose. I promise these podcast episodes will continue to be free to listen to. You only need to become a member if you want to earn a certificate or ASHA CEUs for the pod courses. But honestly, why not when the membership costs you less than two lattes a month and it's totally worth over $500 in value? My friend, you can keep wishing you could earn ASHA CEUs while listening to this podcast, or you can actually start earning. 
No more scrambling for CEUs at the end of the year or taking irrelevant courses just because they are affordable. And no more feeling like you're in this alone. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. So let's talk about social emotional learning. Why is it significant? Um, when I was thinking about this question, it also really made me think about speech and communication too, because I feel like sometimes we feel like at school academics are like the main piece and that's, you know, that's what we need to focus on. And that's not untrue because that's kind of the point of school. When we really think about it, we want kids to learn academic skills so that they can, you know, move on and um, eventually be super well-educated out in society and able to do what they want to do for a living, right. For the rest of their life. Um, but when we think about things like social emotional learning and things like speech and language, we are not going to be able to complete those academics without social emotional learning skills and without speech and language skills. Right. So I heard a great comparison once where when you think of school, you think of the academics like reading and math and science and social studies, technology, things like that. We think of, we can think of that. Those are the entrees. Um, if we're thinking about this in terms of like going to a restaurant um, but then when we think about social emotional learning and speech and language, like pieces like that, they're foundational. Those are actually the plate, right? So you can't have the entree. You can't have a steak or you can't have a great pasta dish unless you have a plate, right? There's nothing to serve it on. So that's kind of, I think, a good way to think about things like social emotional learning or speech because I really feel that same way about speech and language. Like you're not going to be able to, to access any of those things unless you have that plate there, which is, you know, pretty foundational for a meal. So I think that's just a good mindset to have about those, those pieces when it comes to school. I love the analogy. As before you mentioned the plate, I was thinking like of a triangle with social, emotional, speech, and language and academics, maybe like social, emotional, and speech and language are at the bottom and academics is at the top. I don't know if there's any other components to that, but that's, I like how they're all kind of interrelated. Yeah. I mean, they just don't work without each other. So, yeah. So what are like some social emotional learning type of strategies or maybe resources that are your go-to? So I, there's a lot out there about curriculums for social emotional learning. And I, it's not that I don't necessarily think that there's some um, element with them that can be powerful, but I'm not a huge fan of like the pre-packaged curriculums for social emotional learning. Um, I just think it's too individualized for each school community and each classroom, ages, individual kids. I think it can just be really hard to sort of package it up. Though, while I do understand why there's, you know, companies that have created them because they're needed and, you know, for schools to be able to just kind of like spit it out. But I think it's just a lot more nuanced than that. Um, I do really like a lot of frameworks out there um, and the frameworks that I have found to be really beneficial are responsive classroom. Um, it's a really awesome framework. You can go to lots of different trainings for just sort of how to teach with social emotional learning in mind um, and ways that we can be super proactive with kids. Um, they are the ones that have sort of coined morning meeting and closing circle as ways to um, community build and focus the day sort of around social emotional learning. Um, they also have some great ways to like approach discipline, which, you know, people often lump in with social emotional learning, which is fine, but they have some really nice ethical, super 
um, accessible ways to sort of see discipline, like the way that we can look at it, the lens that we see it through as a school community. Um, I also really like conscious discipline. Um, they historically have worked a lot with our younger students, like pre-K through maybe first grade. But as of recently, they've really expanded their model. So you can really see it through um, even middle school. I think they even have some high school resources now, which is awesome because I think that that's kind of lacking sometimes across the board. They We focus a lot of stuff on little kids, but as kids get older, they still really need social emotional learning support. So um, those are two that I think have been really great. What I love about conscious discipline is that they focus a lot on the brain and teaching kids what happens to your brain when you're in a calm state versus when you're upset and when you're scared, you know, it sort of shows kids have different parts of your brain turn on and other parts kind of not necessarily stop working, but they're not working the way that they are when you're calm. So it's harder to make decisions and sort of what happens in our brain so that we can understand it more. And as an adult, when I learned about this, I'm like, wow, I don't think anyone taught me that when I was a kid. And that maybe would have been helpful when I started to lose my cool in certain situations. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because I had spoken to someone like a, a, a while back, quite a few episodes back and uh, her child has trouble with like regulating. And mm -hmm. she talked about like, uh, what, what was her strategy? Oh, I can't remember, but it was so good. Oh, just like, it was kind of like acknowledging, um, you know, the way that they're feeling, not giving in to what they're doing, but just kind of like acknowledging, validating how they're feeling. And yes. It's so powerful. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, I would have benefited from that as a child too. <laughs> yes. Like, oh my gosh, I wish someone did that with me. I went through many a phase of tantrum city right yeah and instead of being like you need to chill out you know it's so helpful to have someone say like wow I think you might be upset right now are you feeling upset you know and just like sort of walking through and just like helping kids experience emotions and feeling them because we all get upset you know even even adults get mad and have bad days you know we all do so yeah such a good point yeah well when you know better you do better right Exactly. Right. Right. So now it's like, we need to spread the word, you know, and while this can be so helpful for us as teachers, if, if any of us are parents, it's like, we can use a lot of this information when we go home. Cause I think it's so much harder. I mean, my daughter is five months old, so I really can't speak to this yet, but I imagine it'll be true of me in the future where like, you can be cool as a cucumber in a crisis with kids at school, but when it gets home and it's your own family, Oh, it gets so much harder because it's so personal and you just want to relax and chill out and you can't, you know, because maybe your, your kiddos having a hard time over a broken crayon or something. So, you know, once we have these strategies, it can be, I think, helpful for us to be able to like use them at home too, you know? Absolutely. I love that. So, uh, one of the things that you are very like interested in is trauma informed practices. So what is, yeah. it, is it important? So, we just know so much more now in um, trauma has always been around, right? People have experienced trauma since the beginning of time. People are, are, they experience stuff, stuff happens in life and it sticks with you. Right. And this has always happened since the beginning of humanity. But until recently, we haven't really had the data behind it to understand how much that affects us as you know, we develop as people. And it, we know trauma can greatly affect an adult. Like if I were to get into a horrible car accident today, 
that would stick with me and it would be something that I would have to work through, right? But we know even more about how a traumatic situation like a car accident or something maybe that is um, longstanding, like living in poverty or living with abuse, um, how it affects you so much more when you're a child because we depend so much more on the adults around us and around safety and how just knowing that our brains are still developing at that time. And so experiencing a traumatic, like one incident or ongoing trauma can be just really, really like effective to our development as people. Um, there have been tons of studies um, over the years. One that is probably the most famous one is called the ACEs study and it goes through adverse childhood experiences. And that's what ACE stands for. And while that study opened up so many doors and just enlightened so many people, that's actually how I started to understand a little bit about childhood trauma. That's how it was introduced to me. We also have information now to know that that's not really a study that we should be following anymore. There's just so many factors that just they did not take into consideration. The sample size wasn't, you know, true of the rest of America. And it was never really designed to be used as, um, as teachers. And actually the, the people that the researchers that were behind it now are just like, Hey, there's more out there. Like we don't really need to be listening to this study anymore. Like grateful for what it did, but let's, you know, see where it's going to take us now, which is into some different directions and a lot more holistic and um, just pays a lot more attention to other factors like race, age, um, you know, where people are coming from in terms of like, immigration and refugee status, things like that. There's just so many pieces that that study didn't take into consideration. But um, as teachers now, what we can do with sort of understanding that trauma is part of the lives of many of our students, um, either ongoing or like I said, just maybe one specific incident that could have affected them like a house fire or something like that, um, is knowing that there's probably going to be a child or more in your class or on your caseload that have experienced trauma, right? Just based on statistics, we know this. And so we know that there's gonna be kids in our care at certain points during the day that have brains that are just like on fire. A lot of times kids who are experiencing trauma are in those brain state models like almost don't even really apply to them because their brains just aren't really like that right now. So that's important for us to like research and look at, like understanding like what a child's brain could look like if they're experiencing trauma and knowing that like a brain that's, you know, in like a hyper state, it's going to be really hard to sit down and be like, let's work on some articulation strategies, you know, like that might not be where their brain is at. Um, but also the hard part is how do we really know which one of our students has experienced this and which one of our students hasn't? And the thing is like, we don't, we, there's no way of us always knowing that. Sometimes you're gonna be privy to a lot of information and with some kids you're not, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that didn't happen, you know? So while I would never advise for us to just like sit around and probe and try to figure out who's experienced trauma and who hasn't, because that's also like in a certain way, like none of our beeswax, you know? Like if we don't know, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it also doesn't mean that we necessarily need to know. So. It's just important to be kind of putting those practices into play all the time and knowing that like we might have kids in our care at any certain time or moment that maybe need some extra support from us, maybe need us to be um, gentle with our words and giving them a little bit of extra grace with certain things like homework and sitting still for long periods of time, incorporating movement into um, strategies, knowing that 
um, having some sensory tools around wouldn't be, you know, a terrible thing just to have with us at any given moment. Um, and knowing that like when kids are having a hard time, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's us or that it's willful, right? For a lot of kids, that could just be a manifestation of what's going on. So just knowing that like, even if I don't have the full picture and know this whole scoop, um, I can be gentle and supportive of a child and just partner with, you know, the other therapists around me and the other teachers in, um, in this kid's life to be able to find, you know, what works. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I imagine that, you know, this is probably evolving this area, but maybe universal design for learning, there could be some that could be implemented within that, that would help those children, but also help everyone as well. Yeah, exactly. That's like the exact principle that this fits into is like, you know, if you were to add a bunch of visuals in your classroom, like, would that harm anybody? No. Is that going to help a lot of kids? Absolutely. It's sort of a similar thing with the trauma-informed practices. Okay. All right. That's really interesting. I'm going to look into that a little bit more. So before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to share or talk about? Um, I just, uh, I'm grateful to be here and to be able to share. And I just hope that people um, are able to see social emotional learning and behavior practices as something that we can all benefit from and learn more about so that we can support our kids. I love that. Absolutely. That's like why we're doing this series. Cause I think they're the last person that I had on, she's a BCBA and an SLP. And she said that these fields are so complementary. and yes, in the moment we can see that we will be able to benefit our students and our clients so much more. Yeah, I totally agree. So I'm so thankful that you came on today and shared your knowledge, especially like from a special education perspective, as well as um, someone who focuses on emotional disabilities. That's something that we haven't really talked about. Usually when we have someone on for behavior, they're working with kids that, you know, maybe are on the autism spectrum. So this was so important. I'm so grateful for your time. Awesome. I'm glad I could come and join. Thanks for having me. So where can people go and find you and connect with you? Sure. I'm most active on Instagram. So you can find me at underscore misbehavior. And I also have a blog where um, I talk a lot about ethical behavior practices and that's misbehaviorblog.com. I'm also on Facebook um, at, under misbehavior and um, I have a teacher's pay teacher store and that's uh, Ali Sosinski with misbehavior on teacher's pay teachers. Um, so if you just type in misbehavior, you should find me. Great. And the name should be here in the title, but if not, it's M-I-S-S for Miss. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, no problem. All right. Thank you so much, Allie. This has been so informative. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Before we go, please pause this episode and leave a five-star review or take a screenshot to post on social media if you're enjoying it. We're celebrating our two-year anniversary and we're so close to 100 reviews. Your reviews help this podcast keep going and growing because it lets other SLPs know it's worth the listen and it lets us know what topics you like. My team and I spend a lot of time every week putting these episodes together so they can be ready for you every Wednesday morning. Imagine we're giving you a virtual hug because your support seriously means the world.